theyeshiva.net. There was a famous argument in Gemara, in the tractate that is dedicated to Purim and to the month of Adar, which is Masechta Megillah, in Mishnayis and Gemara, there's a very famous argument which part of the Megillah has to be read during the holiday of Purim. The sages instituted the holiday of Purim, of course, after the great deliverance of the Jewish people on the first Purim in the days of Esther and Mordechai. The Gemara tells us, Megillah, page 7, that Esther sent a message to the sages of the day, and she said, Kasvuni Lederus, transcribe my story for generations. I want my story to be enshrined in eternity. And the sages did not want to. And their response was a classic timeless Jewish response. And that is, this will create anti-Semitism. Kina at matila aleinu Kina or sina, this will create and instigate and trigger negative feelings towards Jews. Let's shh. Let's shh, 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 shh the story. Let's do the good Jewish response. They tried to kill us. We won. Now let's go eat. That were good. But to start, you know, writing it down, making a Megillah, Kosvuni. So Hester responded and she said, Every Tom, Spaghetti, and Harry knows my story. My story has been transcribed in all the books, all the Persian history books. In other words, the non-Jews know the story. Let at least the Jews know the story. And this is also one of the great responses of Jewish history. The non-Jews know it already. If only the Jews can figure out the story. So the Chazal ultimately embraced Esther's request. And they wrote up the Megillus Esther that we read on Purim and they instituted the day as a Yom Tif, as a holiday with all of the mitzvahs of the day that we're familiar with. The four mitzvahs, the Mishleyach Manis, sending of the gifts and charity to the poor and the feast of Purim, the Suda of Purim and of course reading the Megillah by night and by day, the only mitzvah that is done twice, by night and by day. The question then is, what part of the Megillah do you read? So you'll say, what do we read the whole Megillah? It's not so simple. The sages argue about it. One said that we begin reading the Megillah from chapter 6, which would make for a much shorter reading. Chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. What's chapter 6? You remember? That night, this king was suffering from insomnia. He could not sleep. He wakes up, and they read from his diary, from the journal of the palace, where he discovers what Mordechai has done for him to save him from an assassination attempt by Bixen and Seresh, and the continuation of the narrative. That's one view. Another view says, no, the Megillah should be read from earlier, and that is when the Megillah tells the story of Haman appointing Amin Achashverish, the Persian emperor, appointing his new prime minister, 
Haman, the son of Hamdasa. After Advarim after this, he rise, he raises the position of Haman and turns him into basically the second in command, the viceroy, the prime minister of the land. That's where the story should begin with on Purim. The third view is not. It should begin from Ish Yehudi Hayyeh B'Shushan Abiru Shmai Mardechai Ben Yari Ben Shimi. Should begin from the second chapter, middle, where we start discussing the story of Mardechai and, of course, his relative Esther, and the continuation of the story. And finally, the mayor's view is: you start from Ba'yehibemeyachashverish. You start from the story of Achashverish, which is chapter one, and as the Chimaris concludes, Halacha Kireb Meir, the Halacha is like Reb Meir, that Kireb is Kula, we read the entire Megillah. The Gemara asks, what's the logic behind each view? The logic behind the first view is that on Purim we read Takfay Shalnais. What we want to discuss is the story of the miracle. That's what we're here for, we're celebrating the miracle. Could we discuss the history of Ahasuerus, the history of Ashti, the early history of Esther and Mordechai? Of course we could. But we're discussing here the miracle of Purim. So what's important is to discuss the deliverance. That's the obligation. You want to tell other parts of the story? But the obligation to read on Purim is Ahasuerus can't sleep and the Yeshua, the salvation begins. The other view says no. We want to have the prelude to the story. There's no deliverance without distress. There's no Yeshua without a crisis. There's no uh, salvation without a challenge, without a difficult moment. Light follows the dark. The light follows the darkness. To really appreciate the miracle, you have to understand the depth of the crisis. The depth of the horror, of the anticipated horror of a Jewish extermination, Khalila. Of course, you have to start from the moments before, from chapters before when Haman is appointed. The third opinion says true. You want to give people the story of the miracle, you want to give them the story of the decree that produced the miracle, but you have to put it in context. Who's Mordechai? Who's Esther? How did Esther get to the palace? You're going to start off suddenly, Haman made a decree. Give us the context of how it happened. Esther was the queen. So when Mordechai speaks to Esther, you understand who she's speaking to. You understand who he is, who she is, what his position is, how he got there, who, how she got there. You have the full story. And then the Gemara says, the fourth opinion is, no, talk for Shalach we have to know the story of Ahasuerus. And that's the halacha. Now the truth is that the first three views are quite comprehensible. The fourth view, which is actually what we do, is actually the most enigmatic. I can understand you read the miracle. I can understand to read the miracle, you have to appreciate the tragedy. The xayra, the horrors, so you read that. I understand in order to even understand the story, you have to know about Mordechai and Esther. I got that. But actually, if you go back to the beginning of the Megillah, you find that the beginning is really irrelevant directly to the story. What's the beginning of the Megillah? The beginning of the Megillah is Ahasuerus is a king. He reigns over 127 provinces. 
when he's celebrating the third anniversary of his reign, he decides to throw a feast, to throw a bash. But not just any bash, a party that would trump any feast, any party that was ever celebrated in Persia, maybe in the world. It continues for 180 days. You know how long that is? That's a half a year. Whoever heard of such a party? Even those of us who uh, know how to party. <laughs> so you party for a weekend, you party for a week. If you really, if you really, if you really have energy, you party for two weeks. But here's a guy who got drunk for 180 days. You have to be able to know how to party, but this is what this guy does. And the, the, and the chapter one describes in detail the menu, the design, the vessels, the ambiance of what? Of the party that Akashvedas threw. This is really relevant to the story of Purim. Is it interesting? It's fascinating. But why don't you tell me who Akashvedas' mother was? Why don't you tell me who his therapist was? Okay, you say he didn't have one. Fine. That's why he was spineless. Okay. He never developed self-confidence. So, you should ask, tell me who his mother was. Tell me who his father was. Tell me who he is, but how did he become a king? Say, listen, we can discuss it, but we just want to get into the story. I got it. We, can just, we never discuss how he became a king. What did he do the first three years? What did he do the first three years? What was the first State of the Union address like that Akashverish gave? What did it sound like? What did he say? What did he do? I don't know what he did the first three years. I don't even know what he did the three ladies. I just know that in the third year he decided that all his ministers and all his servants and everybody who works for him <coughs> must see his wealth and his glory and that he knows how to throw a party. He is the greatest entertainer who ever lived. He is the greatest host. He makes people feel good and celebrate and he throws a party. And when the 180 days are enough, are over, you would think it's time for a little introspection or some relaxation or some serenity. He says, no, we didn't have enough. Now we need a party for another seven days for everybody. Not just the people working in the palace, not the people that are close to him, every man, woman, child, everybody, the Chalam, the entire nation who lives in the capital of the Persian Empire, which is named Shushan, everyone is now invited to a new feast that continues for seven days. Bachatzar, Ginas, Bison, Amalek, in the courtyard, in the garden, and in the home of the Melech. And as the Gemara says, There was a party in the courtyard, there was a party in the garden, there was a party in the home. This was quite a happening situation. And then we have to know the types of materials he used. And we have to know what the floor looked like and the metals, and the jewelry, and the types of vessels, and the wine, and how much drinking was going on. And of course, this is a prelude to the fact that Vashti, his queen, would be summoned by him, she would rebel against him, she would refuse, and ultimately she would be executed. The king, therefore, ultimately would be extremely uh, downtrodden and dejected as a result of this. So they start searching for a new queen, and now we get into the story of Is this a follow-up to the story? Of course, everything in life is a follow-up to the story. Achashverosh's youth as well, how he went into the palace. But at some point, you have to define where is your story, 
And where is the background of the story? From Ish Yehudi Hayyab Rishushan Abirin, this is the story of Purim. The story of Purim is a story that includes four main characters. Achashverish and Haman on one side, Esther and Mardukhan on the other side. The truth is, from all the four characters, the story is really about one person. And that's why it's her name that is associated with the book, and no other name. It's not called Megillas Mardukhai Esther. It's not even called Megillas Esther or Mardukhai. It's certainly not called Megillas Achashverish Bahaman. It's called Megillas Esther, the book of Esther, the scroll of Esther. Because really, it's on the axis of Esther that the story revolves. She is the person who uh, pulls not one string, but all of the strings and really creates the situation and is the one who also puts herself in the front lines. She sacrifices herself. Everyone else actually just fills their role. Everyone else is just doing what they usually do, you know, the usual suspects. Achashverish is being Achashverish, he's always true to himself. A drink will do it. Haman is being true to himself. He hates Jews and he can't even help himself. He doesn't even, maybe he knows why actually, but that's a separate subject. Mardukhai is always the consummate tzaddik. Esther is the one who goes through a transformation in the process. Esther is the one who reinvents herself and continues to reinvent herself. And that's really who Esther is. Esther is... Uh, is, is the mother of the story, Megillus Esther. Got it. <coughs> this, the, the edict, the decree is of course the story. The miracle is of course the story. And the whole party, it's, it's preludes, it's fascinating. But let's say the Megillus would just say, and the king was looking for a queen. Why was he looking for a queen? Maybe Vashti died from natural causes. Maybe he poisoned her. Maybe he executed her. It's interesting, no question, but why don't you tell me where Vashti was born? Why don't you tell me who Vashti was? We can go back and back. Where did Vashti graduate high school? Who was the Shatri between Achashverish and Vashti? It's also part of the story. At some point you say, this is the story, this is not the story. And yet the halacha is that Purim, you have to read the whole Megillah, Kairiyah Kula. And if not... I did not fulfill the mitzvah of the Megillah. In other words, the opening story about the Feast of Achashverish is not only important, but it's indispensable. It's not just important for information. It gives me more information. It enhances the sense of Hashgacha, that it happened to be that Vashti was executed, and therefore he needed a new queen, and therefore Esther came. That could have happened in many different ways, not even through a party. However, Vashti is gone. Even if Vashti would have just died, he needed a new queen. It would have been the story. So it's all interesting and fascinating, but what we're learning here, and Meir says, is that this is the chiyu of the Megillah. This is the obligation of reading the Megillah. In other words, if I don't have a Yibameach I don't have the story. I'm missing the Purim story. Why is it that I'm missing the Purim story without that? Because this is the halacha, it means that even though we can appreciate the other perspective, it's ultimately this perspective that not only gains dominance, but becomes enshrined in Jewish law forever, that this is how you celebrate Purim at the beginning of the story. And the answer for this is, the name of Purim is an interesting name. The Pasuk says the reason we call it Purim is, Purim in Persia means a lot, a goyer. Because Haman cast his lots to determine which is the best day to execute the Jewish people, to exterminate all the Jews. So he had a box, and he had pieces of paper, a papyrus, or whatever he had, and he pulled out 
the right paper and or what he thought was the right paper and he had a month and the month that he had was other there was a choice of 12 months and he chose that one in his goiro in his lottery and then he chose the day which was the 13th day of other so the past success because Haman cast a lot to determine which would be the suitable day to exterminate the Jewish people. And that ultimately was transformed. was the other way around. That day the Jews were given permission to act in self-defense and fight back. And thus they were saved. And the next day, the 14th, they rested. And hence we celebrate Purim on the 14th of Adar. And in the city of Shushan, the fighting continued one more day. And the acts of self-defense had to be continued because there were many more murderers who wanted to kill Jews. So they rested only the next day, the 15th. So therefore, Shushan Purim is the 15th of Adar. And therefore, every city that is surrounded with a fortress is Bimaisi Yeshua Binun, and we celebrate the next day Purim, Shushan Purim. So that is why we call it Purim, to commemorate the Purim which is the Persian name for the Hebrew word goyro, which means a lottery or a lot. You cast a lot, you throw a goyro, you zoich a goyro, because of Purim's lot, because of Haman's, Haman's lottery. The question, however, is one question. Why is it Purim in plural? It should be Purim. Haman cast one lot. It says, Hitbil Pur, who are goyro? He cast one lot. What's the right date? And it came out for Yud Gimel We don't call it one pur. We call it two Purim which is lots, lotteries. There was only one lottery, one lot that he cast. Number two, it's interesting. Why does this detail become the core name of the Yantif? This is not the core of the story. Let's say Haman would have just decided you'd give him other is the right day because it was his Shriga's birthday. Or because of his wife's birthday. Or because it was his wedding anniversary. Or stop! He didn't have to work that day. He had vacation that day. He cast a lot. He didn't. Okay, he happened to cast a lot. Is this the essential message of the story? The message of the story is that the Jewish people were saved. Pesach, we named Pesach. Shavuos is Shavuos. Sukkah, Sukkah is Chanukah. Purim, Purim, the lot. Chanukah is Chanukah's Beis Hamikdash, the dedication of the Beis Hamikdash. Sukkah is the theme of the holiday, the huts. Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Shavuos comes after the seven weeks. That's how we create the holiday. Pesach is the leaping over. Chag HaMatzis, we eat the matzis. Purim, the lots. We're actually commemorating what Haman did. Not even what happens to the Jewish people. And not one Purim, but two Purim. When you look at the story of the Megillah, there's a very interesting phenomenon, and that is that if you were following the story the way it happened, it took a while. We read the Megillah. How long does your minion for Megillah reading take? Depends who reads the Megillah. Some people it takes 45 minutes, some people it takes 25 minutes, and I was once in a minion where somebody did it in seven and a half minutes. Don't ask me how. Whatever minion you're in, let's say a minion of 45 minutes, Depends also when, how, how often they bang on Haman. Some bang every Haman, some only when Haman is with a title. Haman ben Amdasa Hagagi. So that also makes it for a shorter, a shorter Megillah reading. But uh, however long your Megillah takes, let's say 45 minutes, the story happens in 45 minutes. But the real story didn't happen in 45 minutes. The real story didn't happen in 45 days. And the real story didn't happen in 45 months. 
The real story spanned over many, many years. Achashverosh becomes a king. And then he's a king for three years. Those three years are three years. What happened during those three years? I don't know. I don't remember. It's been a long time ago. After three years, he throws a party for 187 days, a half a year. Finally, at the end of the party, he gets into a big fight with his wife, Vashti, and she is killed. Achashverosh is now searching for a new queen. But it's not easy for him to find a new queen. It takes time. When does he get Esther? How many years later? The Pasuk says, Esther was taken to the king in the seventh year of his reign. That's many years that he was without a queen. People don't realize. Don't worry, Achashverosh kept himself busy. You don't have to worry about it. The Megillah makes it quite clear. He was, you know, he was pretty occupied, this Persian monarch. But uh, till he officially, till he officially met Esther, it was the seventh year, and then he had to meet Esther for months. So finally, he appointed her as a queen. That was even later. So you have he becomes a king. Three years later, there's a party. Four, five, six, seven, four years later, he meets Esther. It takes some time, another year, till he appoints her as a queen. And that's not when the story happens. He then appoints Haman as a prime minister. And finally, Haman casts the lot in the 12th year of Achashverosh's reign. So the year seven, Esther becomes a queen. But eight, nine, ten, five or six years later, that's when Haman plans, and that's when he approaches Achashverosh. And that also took some time, planning, strategizing, etc., conceiving his entire evil scheme. And finally, he agrees, Achashverosh agrees and consents to this horrific decree to exterminate in one day every single Jew in the Persian Empire, and that comes out on the 13th day of Nisan, and then the story moves on. And now things already are happening fast. Once this curse, once the demon came out, now things already are happening fast. Esther has a decree. Esther tells Mordechai to institute a fast for three days. This goes into Pesach. It's the only time Jews fasting on Pesach. And uh, I know in your home they also fast on Pesach. But here they literally fasted on Pesach. Not even squeezed orange juice. And uh, they literally fasted for three days. It started with Gimel Nissen, so it went into Pesach. There was no Seder that year. Nobody could have a Seder that year. On the third day, Esther goes into the king. She makes one party. She invites him at one party for a second party. She knows what her husband's attitudes towards parties are, feasts are. At the second party, of course, she creates this plot in which she explains to Achashverosh how Haman wants to destroy her and her people. Haman falls on her bed. Achashverosh is furious. He executes Haman, but the decree is not over. Haman is God, but the decree is still taking place. Now, finally, a few months later, he sends out a second decree, which doesn't eliminate the first decree. People think it was all gone. It wasn't gone. He just gives the Jews the right for self-defense. Until this point, they would just be indefensible victims. Now he tells them you could fight back, but they had to fight. It wasn't so simple, the story of Purim. You'd give a other a year later, they had to fight. Hama was gone, but they had to fight. And they fought Yud Gimel under, they rested Yudal, and that's the holiday of Purim. 
When somebody is watching this story unfolds, if you were reading then, it was before the internet days, people would read the Shushan Times. I don't know if you have a subscription to the Shushan Times. I'm not even sure it's circulation today. But if you were a follower from the Shushan Times, so each, and the Shushan Times had on the top of it, it said all the news that's fit to print goes into the Shushan Times. What happens in the Shushan Times? They report that Ahasuerus became a king. Then they report he's giving a State of the Union address. Then they report that the media hates him and he's trying to make them feel better about him. So he throws a party for 180 days for everyone in Washington. It's still not enough, so he throws another party for seven days for everybody in the Capitol. Shut stories and you have op-ed analysis and you have essayists and journalists and professors and academics and morons and conservatives and liberals and right-wingers and left-wingers and politicians and mentors and thinkers and pseudo-thinkers telling us who he is, who he wants to be, who he's not, what his issues are. He's absolutely mad. He's absolutely brilliant. He's going to take the country and bring it to paradise. He's going to take the country and drive it straight into purgatory. Every pundit expressing to us his or her brilliant opinion about the future of the country based on the identity of the king. And everybody is secure in their stories. And these stories are going on for three years already. And of course, during the party, you can imagine what the pundits were writing about. And then when Vashti is killed, now you have a whole new story. Also from different perspectives, right? Some of the people are defending Vashti and are actually making organizations called the Vashti Organization for Women's Rights. <laughs> Finally, a woman who stood up to a man 2,500 years ago. He said, come, and she said, I'm not coming. He said, I'm your husband, and she said, I'm your wife. He said, I'm the king, and she said, you belong in a horse stable, as the Gemara says. You essentially got your job from helping the horses of the Babylonian emperor. I am the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, who she was, fourth generation. Nebuchadnezzar, Evel Meroidah, Balshatzer. Nebuchadnezzar, Evel Meroidah, Balshatzer, whose daughter was Vashti. She had royal blood, Babylonian blood in her sinews. She said, I am the one who made you the king only because you married me. If not for me, you would have still been in a stable with horses in a barn. Vashti stood up. So of course, some people sided with Vashti, some people sided with him, some people sided with nobody. But this was a whole new story in the press. And this continued for a good few years. Then started the scandals in the newspaper about what Achashverosh was doing at night. This became really interesting. The whole system that he created for people coming and people going, and the perfumes and the cosmetics, as the Megillah describes in very interesting detail. Finally, in the seventh year, years later, there's a whole new headline. And the new headline is Esther comes. Esther comes to the story. And now, for a few months, they're busy with Esther. The only problem is they don't know anything about her. You couldn't, you Googled Esther, zero results. It's hard today to find somebody that doesn't exist on Google, but it's an accomplishment. 
There's people the other way around. Every morning when they go into the office, they Google their name to see how many results. It's hard for you to believe, but I know such people. I know such people. Perhaps, perhaps if you would Google, but Esther, if you Googled her name, there were zero results and she kept it that way. So nobody had what to say. There was no file on her. No family, no father, no mother, as the Megillah described. So it was all speculation based on seeing her, what type of personality she is. Now, five years later, Haman comes into the picture, and there's a whole new Xavier, it's a whole new story. That's how you would follow the story if you were following the Shushan times. The accomplishment of the Megillah is, and this is the view of Reb Meir, is something else. That the Megillah basically allows us to retroactively Reread the story. When we go back to throwing a party three years later for 187 days, we're now reading a new story. This is not a story about a king living in Persia throwing a party. This is part of the story of Purim. What does it have with the story of Purim? Because ultimately we see that a line can be drawn a picture is developing. Vashti is eliminated. So years later, Esther could come in. So years later, when Haman comes in, and years later, when he issues forth his decree, everything is set up in its place to be able to eliminate the decree through Mordechai and Esther. So one will ask the question, why do I come back to the original of the, story, the beginning of the story of Achashverosh? Why don't you tell me about his previous history and Vashti's previous history? Because this itself is one of the great messages of Purim. That sometimes you look at something and it's years, years apart. It spans many years, many decades, sometimes centuries, sometimes millennia. And when you're following it, you don't see a connection. You don't see a cohesive plan. You don't see an integrated structure. You don't see the story behind the story. You see every story as an isolated story. And yet what the Megillah reveals is that what is the true story of Ahim Ahashverish? The true story of Ibn Ahashverish is So you'll ask a question, it's not true. The story of Ahim Ahashverish in the Shushan Khans was a story about a Persian king who threw a party. It has nothing to do with the Jewish people. It would almost sound narcissistic. They say there was once a Jewish student who came home and his grandmother said, what are you doing? He said, I'm finishing my dissertation. She says, what are you writing about? He said, I'm writing about the whales in New Zealand. She says, yeah, but is it good for the Jews? <laughs> Sometimes it almost seems like obsessive and erotic. What does Vahim Emeach and his party have to do with with the story of the Jewish people? But the Megillah says there's two perspectives. From a superficial perspective, it's disconnected. When you go later and you read the story and the way the Megillah puts the story together, suddenly what is Vayibim Echashverish? The essence of Vayibim Echashverish is what is in the story, what is behind the story, what is the flavor that infuses the story, what is the energy behind the story, what is the backdrop of the story, what is the soul of the story, where is the story leading to? Story is leading to the death of Vashti and the appointment of Esther and the decree of Haman and Mordechai and Esther eliminating the decree and the Jewish people 
being saved and not only remaining intact, not only surviving, but thriving with the entire metamorphosis and transformation of history that takes place at the end, ten chapters later, at the end of the story of the Megillah. If this is the case, then one understands very well why the name of the holiday is not Pur, but Purim, and why it even has the name Pur, and why it's given a Persian name, the only Jewish holiday that doesn't have a Jewish name. Pesach is a Torah name, a Lashon Kodesh, the name Hebrew. Shavuot, Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Hanukkah. Purim, we could have called it Goyro. Would have been a nice name, no? Chaga Goyro, you don't like it? It's okay? Okay, thank you. I say it's beautiful. Chaga Goyro, Chaga Goyrolos. It would be less Shalach Monos, don't worry. Chaga Purim. Purim is a Persian name, why give a Persian name? But all these three questions have the same thing. Why? There's two lots here. When you say, think about goyrel, when I throw a goyrel, what does a goyrel mean? Goyrel means random. Why did you win the lottery? Why is it always somebody else wins the lottery? Why? They say that there was once a rabbi who was phoned by a woman. She says, Rabbi, I'm afraid that my husband Chaim is gonna die today from a heart attack. He says, why, what happened? She says he won the lottery. $340 million. You know my husband is a coxswain. He's a poor man. Never had a penny to his name. He's not going to be able to deal with the news. He's going to die when he hears the news. The rabbi says, you know what? Send him over to my office before he comes home. Shine. Chayim, the rabbi wants to see you. He goes over. Rabbi, how can I help you? I just wanted to know. You know, you're making a living. You're covering your bills, paying your bills. He says, Rebbe, you know, God doesn't want me to have money. I'm poor, my father was poor, my Zaydu was poor, my elder Zaydu was poor. It seems like our family is destined to poverty. He says, Chaim, come on, you never know, you have to make a keli, you have to make a vessel. He says, Rebbe, I've been trying all these years. You know, I buy the lottery every single week, I buy the lottery. So he says, no, and maybe you'll win. He says, trust me, people like me don't win. People in Montana win, Kentucky, somewhere, Psahik Town, somewhere. People like me never win the lottery. That's the fact. He says, you never know, somebody got to win. He says, stop dreaming. He says, why do you buy the lottery? You have to make a stadlos, I have to do something to, for a job, right? He says, so maybe you're going to win. It's not happening. He says, Chaim, you never know. What happens if you win? What happens if you win? He says, Rabbi, stop dreaming. But you know what? If I win, you get half the money. <laughs> so the rabbi had a heart attack. <laughs> So when you ask a question, what's the relationship between me and the Goyro? Can I explain why this person won the lottery? These numbers are connected to your soul. There's no explanation. It's called random. We call it luck. That's what poor is. Here we say poor, purim. There's two lotteries. There's the Goyro from my perspective, and then there's the Goyro from a deeper perspective, from a higher perspective. What Purim revealed was that events that just seemed completely random and disconnected really have a pervasive, unifying, integrated theme, even if it's difficult or impossible for me to discern while it's happening. And it takes years, years, years to be able to say, it's one story, it's one Megillah. And if I don't read the first chapter, I did not fulfill the mitzvah of Purim. Because the idea of Purim is that 
the feast of Achashverosh, the story of Achashverosh, which is completely Mordechai is not on the scene, Esther is not on the scene. That too is essentially a lead up to the Purim story. I want to give an interesting example that some of you can relate to even in terms of family. If you were reading the newspaper in 1840, anybody here was reading the newspapers in 1840, you would have noticed that there was an opium war between Britain and China. It's called the Opium War. There were large quantities of opium growing in China. The British made claim to it. The Chinese made claim to it. And it was a conflict. And how did the conflict come to an end? They compromised and they decided that one city in China, Shanghai, will become an international city that's not exclusively the domain of China or Britain, which practically meant you can go into that city without a visa. You don't need a visa to get to Shanghai. This is 1840. A story in the newspaper. Is it interesting? Yeah. If you're interested in what's happening in opium and in China, with opium and with China, it's an interesting story. For the Jewish people, was it an interesting story in 1840? Not a story, man. What's up with the Jewish people? By even China with Britain with opium. Now forward the tape recorder of history exactly 100 years. It's 1940. Nazi Germany invades Poland in September, September 1939. Millions of Jews are now with a uh, noose around their neck. In a few years, a third of European Jewry would be exterminated. And Sugihara, Sugihara, the Japan Council, issues forth hundreds and thousands of certificates which allow the Jewish people, many Jews, to ultimately escape through Russia all the way to Japan. Japan, however, in the Pacific War becomes an ally of Germany and the Jews are stuck. There's nowhere they can go. You need a visa. There's nowhere they can go. Where are they going to go? There's no Israel. Israel is under British mandate. America doesn't allow Jews in. Who allows Jews in? Much of Europe is under Hitler rule. There's one city that you don't need a visa. Where? Shanghai. Because of an opium war in 1840. And suddenly you go back to 1840, you see a whole different story. 50 or 60,000 Jews were saved from the gas chambers because of that, what happened in 1840. Today, there are hundreds of thousands of Jews alive. Their descendants, some of you know their descendants, or maybe part of those families, right? Here we have, of Shanghai survivors who then either came to Israel or came to Canada or came to America, wherever they settled and rebuilt families and rebuilt communities. The whole Miri, the Miri Yeshiva, and many other Yeshivas, and the Chal, many Jews, and so forth. I was a few years ago in China, Kung Fu, over there, they have the ghetto, where all these Jews were stranded, so to speak, during the war years. It's a whole different story, If you look at history, you study history, this is what Purim is saying. There are two different lotteries happening. There's the lottery of Hama, it's random. 
And then there's the randomness of the world. But the lottery of Haman is really a reflection of a deeper lottery. A different type of goyro, a different type of law. And it's in Persian, it's not in Hebrew. Why in Persian? Because that's exactly the whole point. You may not see here any divine plot or any divine theme, but it's part of one story. This is true collectively with world history. It's true collectively with the Jewish people. It's also true individually in life. We often spoke about, take for example, the story of Yosef. If the Shushan times, I should say now the Egyptian times, would report the story of Yosef, front page headlines. A former prisoner becomes prime minister of Egypt. Certainly a story. It's a great headline. A prisoner for 12 years, accused of doing inappropriate things, becomes the prime minister of Egypt. Well, over there it wasn't inappropriate, I should say. Egypt was Egypt. Ervis Haaretz. He becomes the prime minister. And then they'll have a box on page 8, gray background, who he is, right? He was a slave by Potiphar, comes from an unknown background, from the Hebrews, from the Israel, from the Jews, they were called the Hebrews, Ivrim, somewhere in the land of Canaan, has an illustrious father, an illustrious grandfather, had a very illustrious great-grandfather. Of course, they don't know the story with the brothers and the pit and all that. And he becomes prime minister, he's charming, he's intelligent, he's handsome. He's good looking, he's charismatic, he has economical, he has a brilliance in economics, he's a dreamer, and it's looking good. It's looking good, that's a story, no question. But the way the Torah covers the story is a different story. It's a different story. The Torah zooms into a detail, a little detail, that this press wouldn't even report. What's the detail the Torah zooms into? Parshas Vayeshev, Yosef is in prison. It's just another day in prison. Another day bites the dust. The sun rises and the sun sets. Another day in confinement. Another day enslaved. Another day in subjugation. Another day in misery. And it's morning. But morning and night in prison is the same thing because you're not going anywhere. There's nowhere to run. And Yosef sees two people. And they're not Jewish. They're probably not Jew lovers. If they were friends of Petifa, they were probably anti-Semites too some level, some level. You have a butler and you have a baker. He has no deep spiritual or emotional kinship with them. Certainly no biological or even tribal connection with them. He's a Jew. They're Egyptians. They work for Pyra. Yosef is in a different space. And what does he see? Vihinam Zoyafim. You know what Zoyafim means? Nishtovgirekt. Zoyafim means Zoyer. They look sour. In English we would say depressed, melancholy, dejected, downtrodden. Early in the morning, what do you expect? They didn't have their coffee yet. They didn't take their pills yet. They're depressed. Now what do I do when I see people early in the morning depressed, even not in prison? I know they didn't do what they have to do yet. They didn't drink the Kool-Aid after drink in the morning. You don't talk to them. In shul, there's always people who are in moods. Fine. Do I know what his wife told him this morning on the way out? Do I know what she told him? I'll never know. Person comes in with a sour face. I go into a yeshiva seven in the morning. The boys are depressed. I'm surprised. What should they be doing? They think they want to be? It's a halfway house for them. 
They're waiting to leave. Of course, they're sour. Everybody has a sour face. Everybody has a sour face. He tells them, you're dismissed. They become happy. I mean, it's Purim and stuff. That's what I would think, even when I'm outside in freedom. In prison? Of course they're depressed. But somehow Yosef felt otherwise. He looked at these two people and he asked them a question, and the question consisted of four words. Madua pneichem royim hayoim. Why is your face, why are your faces so sad? Why do you look so bad? Why do you look down? Yosef asks them. I don't even want to continue. Just the question is so powerful. First of all, he noticed. Second of all, he cared to ask. If your grandmother would have seen them depressed, she would say, I love from Zegar Zagavar. Because I was depressed. They're depressed. He cared and he asked. But how about you done more? Wait a question. What is he supposed to do? And let's say they say, Oh, genius, because we're in prison waiting on death row. That's why we're depressed. You want us to dance Kazatskis? What are we, standing at a sushi table at your son's bar mitzvah? What are we, at a Viennese table with diet cheesecake? Of course we're depressed. What should we be doing? What is it? We're on death row. One of them would soon be executed, hung. So what should he do? Dance? Sing? Where should you be depressed if not in a pit in Cairo on death row? Where should you be depressed? Where do you have a right to be? What type of question is this? Forgive me, Yosef. I don't get the question. I see people who are free, they're depressed. In fact, today's day and age, when you see somebody happy, you want to know what's going on. <laughs> if people are depressed, it's like, okay, Baruch Hashem, welcome to the club. Isn't it true? When you see somebody, eh, eh, my back hurts, my stomach hurts, I'm having a stroke, I almost had a stroke, my husband is going to die, I'm dying, this one died, this other. That's what Jews do, I have a backache, the shvigir, the mother-in-law is here, the mother, everyone has a chassan, shalach is the tragedy of the century, put in Shabbos, have guests, of course, that's in freedom. In freedom, who walks around happy? If you see somebody happy, you want to know, what are they on? <laughs> we don't expect people to be happy. We expect people to be downtrodden, melancholy, dejected, and in a bad mood. And then it fits our paradigm. Somebody is happy? Woo! Doesn't make sense. You want to know who are they seeing? Is everything all right? Maybe they need help. You want to know what type of help they need? Why are they so happy? See, Yosef asks this question in prison to two non-Jews. It tells you how he thought about life. He felt that happiness is the essential state of a human being. And the truth is that you see it in children. Children naturally are happy. They don't need something to create happiness. Later, it's an iPod. <laughs> Till what age? Today, it's three and a half. <laughs> Used to be 13 and a half. Used to be Bar Mitzvah was 13. Today Bar Mitzvah is around four. <laughs> Children are naturally happy. Okay, then they learn from adults how to become miserable. There's no question. They're happy with what? Life is happiness. Life equals happiness. Being is happy. In fact, every creature is happy. Every creature. Besides people and besides dogs in Los Angeles and New York. <laughs> because they hang out with people a lot. Park Slope, Manhattan, Los Angeles, etc. So, you know, dog is man's best friend. Kelev, Kuloy Leif. 
To be alive is to be happy. Because what is living? Living is... I'm living in the embrace of a living God. Every moment of life is an opportunity to experience the magic of existence and the miracle of creation. Identity is a gift. Life essentially is a celebration. And every single person under all circumstances is not only entitled to be happy, but it's really their essential state because Yosef in prison fell that way. Because here's really the biggest question. What about he? He's asking them, why are you depressed? It sounds like he's this happy-go-lucky guy. He's this jolly fellow. No concern in the world. It's like, hey, Hever, why are you depressed? What about he himself? What was his future looking like at that point? Bleak. Not one friend, not one family member, alone in the world. No mother, no father, no siblings, nothing. No lawyer, no advocate. He was thrown into prison by his own master, and there was no way of going up. Egypt was no democracy then. It's a pretty shady democracy now. Prison meant prison for life. You see how Yosef pleads with the butler to get him out because he was stolen. And I was put here innocently. And yet, Yosef, it seems like, was a happy person. To the point that when he sees two non-Jews depressed, he's like, What's going on? Ah, what a perspective he teaches us. Happiness is an inherent state of life. Why? That's what we spoke about a few weeks ago because Yosef never saw himself as being sold. He saw himself as being sent. He was an ambassador. He was sent. And he was sent knowing full well that he has all the power he or she needs in order to bring light into a space of darkness. Whatever that space is, circumstances did not define his or her, his, in this case his, mood and attitude to life. Circumstances sometimes are challenging. But to be alive is to be happy. What happens now? You take a look at Yosef and you say, okay, he's a nice guy. I wish he was my kid's Rebbe. I wish he could be my therapist, make me a little happy. That's not his story. They tell him, you know why you were depressed? Because we had a dream. We had a dream! And isn't that why most people are sad? Because they had a dream? They had a dream of what life is supposed to look like, of what love is supposed to look like, of what marriage is supposed to look like, of what children are supposed to look like, of what existence is supposed to look like. And Yosef says, so tell me your dream. Tell me your dream. He doesn't say stop dreaming, lower your standard. He says, tell me your dream. And they share with him their dream. And Yosef explains the dream. And when the butler is liberated based on that interpretation of the dream, he says, remember me, remember my dream. I also had dreams. I also don't belong. I also had dreams. And I never forgot my dreams. And go tell Pare about my dreams and help me get out of here. And two years later, Pare has dreams. And in Pare's dreams, Yosef's dreams come true. As I dream, I allow your dreams to be realized. And as you dream, you allow my dreams to be realized. And Yosef becomes the Prime Minister of Egypt. So the Egyptian Times gave me a headline. 
Slave rises to become prime minister. Story, headline, with a box, page eight, his background. In the Torah story, it's a different story. One good morning to two depressed people in a prison cell, that's what changed history. That's what it's about. The Torah goes back and traces back this transformative moment. Remember, if Yosef would not become the prime minister, Egypt might have been destroyed from famine, including the Jewish people would have been destroyed from famine. We wouldn't even be here today. So Yosef saves history and the Jewish people. And how does that happen? Because of one good morning to two depressed Gentiles in prison. So if I see somebody in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, and they look down, they look sour, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and I give him a hug, and I say, Chaver, my friend, why, if I was Mr. why are you sad? What can I do for you? Tell me your dream. I could look at it and say, I'm a nice guy. I'm a fine guy. I could have smacked him in the face. I could have said, get out of my way. I could have said, go find a doctor for yourself. Instead, I gave him a hug and I said, why are you depressed? But that's not how Judaism looks at it. Judaism says at that moment, you changed history. You saw the morning, that's it, you saw. But if you could see the underlying soul of the story, what happens? Yosef couldn't see it, but we see it. Achashvedi is throwing a party. Achashvedi is throwing a party. All there is is a bunch of drunks in Shushan who are smashed. That's the story. But in the Megillah, it's a different story. It's the story of Purim. 1840 is an opium war in China. But in hindsight, it's a different story. It's close to maybe a million Jews alive today because of it. I don't know exact number, but certainly hundreds of thousands because most of them... Many of them created huge families besides students and communities, spiritual children as well. All because of something that happens there. So how do I look at the story? There's two ways you could put on different glasses to see the story. One set of glasses gives you one story. Another set of glasses gives you a whole other story. And the whole idea of Purim is that even when you're wearing your external glasses, you should be able to have the courage to understand that there may be. And there is a deeper set of lenses that I have to be sensitive to. Yosef didn't know how it's going to work out. But he knew it's going to work out and he has to plant seeds. He is an ambassador of love, light, and hope. Wherever he is, he represents, he gives love, he gives light, and he gives hope. So he sees two people down, and he says, tell me why you're down. When you think about this in terms of an individual life story, this is also a very vital point. When you look at your lives, can you recognize a theme, yes. a pattern that pervades your life? We all know generally day to day, Life could be pretty fragmented. Just open your phone and look at what you still have to do after the shiur today. You'll see there's a lot on the list, probably 40 things. You'll accomplish three today, and you'll be left with 37 for tomorrow, and then there'll be another few tomorrow. 
And so it goes on. I mean, usually, I don't know if we could do 40 things in a day. Maybe some women are different. We men do between, if we could do two or three or four things a day, we're happy. If you could do six or seven things, it's much miraculous. Women have maybe a different level, but it's also people exaggerate on their capacity, and it goes on and on. But when I look at my day, I look at my schedule, you often see things. And what happens is, one often sees life from a very fragmented perspective. And not only from a fragmented perspective, but sometimes from a very depressing perspective. Especially when you zoom in and you tune in to different events in life that seemed at best irrelevant and at worst painful. At best irrelevant, there was a party of 187 days, nothing to write home about. At worst, it wasn't only irrelevant, it was a failure. It was a waste of time. It was a, uh, a difficult time. It was a time of crisis, a time of pain, sometimes a time of deep pain. But we live, we move on, we breathe, we try to embrace another day and we move on. What the Megillah is trying to say, Reb Meir, comes from the word Ur, Meir, Ur. Ur means the ability to be able to have the light, to see things from a deeper perspective. And when I see things from a deeper perspective, I have to realize that my life may sometimes be like a roller coaster. And sometimes I have to reinvent myself again and again and again. And in a roller coaster of life, you're not always going up, sometimes you're going down. Or if you want the example of a Ferris wheel, do you like more roller coaster or Ferris wheel? Whatever it is, the Ferris wheel, you can't stay on top the whole time. It goes in a circle, you go down. Now there's a difference between a Gentile on a Ferris wheel and a Jew on a Ferris wheel. When the Ferris wheel stops on top or midway down, the Gentile starts taking pictures. And the Jew writes a will. And he calls the Hevra Kaddisha and he starts saying Shema Yisrael. And he assumes that it's broken. And in a few moments he's going to take a deep leap right into the abyss, right into the death. And there's an absolute crisis. And then he starts eating. Because he always takes food into the Ferris wheel. And the Gentile is standing and jumping and taking pictures. And the Jew is like, I'm having a heart attack. Call my doctor. The Ferris wheel is not working because it stopped for 25 seconds. In the roller coaster, you don't even have time to say I'm dying. It just whoops straight. Before you know it, it's already after Kaddish. But whatever the story of life is, that I'm not always in control because there's many different circumstances. What the story of Purim tells us, what the story of the Megillah is, don't think that the story of Purim is Balayla Ahu Nadada. And don't think that the story of Purim begins with Akhirat Varimail. And don't think that the story of Purim begins with Ish Yehudi Hoya B'Shushan Abir. The story of Purim begins with items and things that seem insignificant, inconsequential, small, a waste of time, of no meaning, of ridiculous meaning, of absurd meaning, sometimes of painful meaning. All that is essential to your story. Don't regret it. Don't get depressed about it. Don't let it bog you down. Don't let it make believe that your story is not a miracle. The greatest obstacle in life is when you start believing that your story, your story has too many foolish details to turn it into a miracle. You look at somebody else's life and say, ah, this is a life. My life. <laughs> look at this. Everybody knows in their own life what I'm talking about. Or some. But this, that's the story, this miracle from starts with Vayi Bimech 
Some guy, he was making up whole party of feast, irrelevant, but there's a whole deeper theme going on. What you have to do is have to find the light there. I have to find the soul there. I have to find the opportunity there. So yes, sometimes a person has to rebuild, and then rebuild again, and then rebuild again. And in the process, they could become very dispirited and very discouraged. But they have to remember that with the right perspective, they could see that throughout of all of it, there was always an arrow going up. They were going higher and higher and higher and higher. But this depends on one thing. And that is the understanding that there is a double pur. There's no single pur. There's two purims. There are two gairalas. There's the gairal from Haman's perspective where everything is random. And there's the gairal of Matlayim Gairalenu from the divine perspective where everything has meaning. Or to quote Professor Albert Einstein, he says there's two perceptions of life. You could look at the world in two ways. Either nothing is a miracle or everything is a miracle. Either nothing is a miracle. That's okay. <coughs> but if not that way, there's nothing in between. Or everything is a miracle. And everything includes literally everything. So therefore, the halacha comes and tells us that when you want to read the Megillah on Purim, one has to be able to see the story from because essentially, that in itself is part of the message of story, of a Purim. Don't disconnect the dots. And even if there are isolated dots, you have to be able to understand that if you can see things from a deeper place, it's all part of one story. This is Reb Meir's perspective. Oyer. The Holy Reb Baruch of Mezhebush. The Rebbe Reb Baruch of Mezhebush was a grandson of the Baal Shem Tev. Rebbe Adul was a daughter of the Baal Shem Tev. Her son was the Baruchel of Mezhebush. He once came to a city in the Ukraine called Zhitomir. He's walking on a street in Zhitomir, and he sees a Jew there. Like a simple Jew goes over to him, Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Aleichem. He tells the Jew, by the way, do you have a son who needs to get married? He says, yeah. He says, I have a daughter who needs a Shidduch. Maybe we could make a Shidduch together. He says, with you? Me? My son with your daughter? What's the question? My son will be not in the seventh heaven, he'll be in the, in the millionth heaven. The Baruch says, Mazel tov. It's a good shidduch for my daughter. I know my daughter, you know your son. Mazel tov. So Jews are walking, they see a psalmazel, they come over, what happened? The Baruch of Mezhebush, who was one of the tzaddikim of the generation, announced the shidduch between his daughter and this man's son. They go over to the Baruch and they whisper, they say, Mistake, mistake, mistake. He says, why? He says, this guy is the Ghana von Stolz. He is the thief of the city. You know that in every Jewish city, one of the time-honored traditions was that there was a Ghana. Because everybody has to make Parnas in some way. So there was a guy whose official employment was the Stolz Ghana. The thief of the city. Some cities have more than one. Okay, they like to be Mahadir. But the concept is at least one Ghana, at least one thief. Present company, of course, excluded. He was the Stuttgart. The guy stole and stole. If there's something missing in your pocket, you knew he did it. Something missing in your house, you know he did it. Sure. He was the guy. You know, he was the type of guy that was once a rabbi. 
who was sitting three o'clock in the morning and learning. Like a good rabbi is sitting and learning his Gemara at three o'clock in the morning. There was a Shtadganev. Every night, every week, he was going from the chimney. You know, the chimneys, going from the chimney, climbing to the house, take the food he needed for the week for his children. He was an innocent Ghanav. Take the food for his kids and then go back a week later. It happened to be that night he chose the rabbi's house and the chimney happened to come out of the rabbi's study. So he slips down the chimney, he comes into the rabbi's study, and he's bedecked. You ever went through a chimney? He's bedecked with charcoal and white from head to toe. The rabbi was a very innocent person. So he looks at him and says, Chaviyanko, what brings you here 3.30 in the morning? Rabbi came to ask a question. It really must be an urgent question at 3 30 in the morning. What's the question? He says, The child is the question is the Knichtman von Dan and Tarois. My question is, how do I get out of this mess? The Knichtman von Dan and Tarois, how do you get out of this mess? That's my question. Okay. It's called the Stuttgart. They tell the Baruch, this is the Stuttgart. You're taking your daughter. And you understand, like father, like son. If this is a shtadgan of what a son looks like. You're marrying off your daughter to her. Baruch Hu just waved away with that. And people came over, everyone was, became, the, you know, how the news travels in, in the little shtetlach in Ukraine, Zhitomir. The Baruch Hu said, this is the shit. In Zhitomir there lived a very holy Jew, his name was the Wolf of Zhitomir. Reb Zeev Wolf of Zhitomir, who was a student of the Balshamtiv and the Magid of Mizrich. He has a safer called Ur Hameir, the light that illuminates. Ur Hameir, the He has passed away by then, but his widow was still living in Jatamir. The Baruchel of Mezhebush said he wants to go visit the widow. He wants to go visit her, say hi to her. So he goes to the wife of the Wolf of Jatamir. He comes into her house, she greets him, and she says, Mazel tov. I heard you made a Shidduch. He says, Yeah. She says, Ah. It's a good shidduch. He says, how do you know it's a good shidduch? Everyone is telling me it's a horrible shidduch. They want to kill me. How do you know it's a good shidduch? She says, I'll tell you how I know. I'll tell you how I know. This is what she told me. She said, in this city, there's a custom. The local authorities have a covenant. If somebody is caught stealing, they put the thief in a wagon, in a coach, and they lead him around the whole city with a big sign. Here is the thief. Laman Yishmu Viro, public humiliation. The kids stand and laugh and throw pebbles. And the whole city watches this person, Jew or Gentile, being led around the city. Here's the thief. That's the punishment. She says, years ago, my husband, Revolv Jetomir, the Eidameir, was sitting by the window and he was looking outside. And suddenly he sees this coach, this wagon coming by the street where we live with this Jew, this thief on the wagon, with a big sign, here's the Ganef, and everybody laughing and mocking and pointing, the thief, the thief. And my husband is looking out the window and he looks at this Jew who's sitting in the wagon very peacefully. And my husband turns to me and he says, he did not steal. I said, Reb Wolf, that's you, you're naive. You're out for lunch. You're a tzaddik. You think everybody's a tzaddik. You're a holy Jew. You think everybody's a tzaddik. And my husband says, as Nishkin Ganev, he's not a thief. I say, how do you know? She says, I could see on his face. When somebody steals, you could see on their face 
When somebody lies, you could see it on their face. If you're sensitive, if you have antennas, even professional liars, you see that the angel is replaced by a little devil. You could see it. You could see there's an aura. There's an aura around every person. The four cubits have an aura. You could see the angel is replaced by a little devil. Not a big one, a little one. Big lies, a bigger devil, little lies, a little devil. But you can see it. If you send those here who are sensitive, know what I'm talking about. If you don't know, you're better off. <laughs> you know the mice? That's a good one. There was an old man. I'll get back to... There was, there was an old man. There was an old man who came to the doctor. He needed hearing aids. The doctor gave him hearing aids. Comes home. Shy. Comes back for a visit. Doctor says, no, how are the hearing aids going? He says, unbelievable. It's the first time I hear in 30 years. He says, no, what does your family say? He says, I didn't tell my family. <laughs> I didn't tell my family. Doctor says, wow, that's so interesting. He says, yes, I got it two days ago and I already changed my will three times. <laughs> okay. <laughs> how do we get into hearing aid? <laughs> Ah, if you don't hear, you're better off. If you don't get it, you're better off. Shut. The vulture Thomas says, I look at his face. I see he's not a ganav. I tell my husband, you're dreaming. You have a lot of schos as a ganav. Come on. You know, she's a practical lady. The vulture says, you want to know that I'm going to, you want to know how you will know that I'm right? He says, in a few years from now, a big tzaddik will come to the city. And he's going to make a shidduch between his child and this person's child. Because he will see what I see. That this man has a light radiating from his face. This is not the light of a thief. This is a different light. And you'll see that I'm right. So she says, that's why I told you, that's why I told you, it's a good shidduch. Because my husband already predicted this shidduch. So he looks at her and he says, but was your husband right? <laughs> She says, I had to, I was so inquisitive. I was so uh, eager to discover it. So I did some research. And in secrecy, I discovered that this was the story. So another Jew did a stealing. And that Jew was caught. And that Jew was about to suffer this public humiliation. And he spoke about this to this friend of his. And he asked him what to do. He said, I will not survive this humiliation. My identity, my confidence will be so shattered, I won't be able to live, I won't be able to look at people, I won't be able to survive, I won't exist. I'll kill myself. So this other man said, you know what? I'll go in your stead. I'll say that I stole, it wasn't you. I'll go, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. It won't, it won't affect me the way it'll affect you. I'll be good. So I learned, but my husband saw the man on the wagon, he said, he saw that it was not him. He saw the face radiating from him. This was the song. So the name of his sefer is Oyr HaMeyer. Oyr HaMeyer. Oyr HaMeyer means the light that shines. You can have two people look at the same face, look at the same reality. One sees the outer layer, one sees the inner layer. You can have two people looking at the same child, looking at the same girl, looking at the same bacher, looking at the same whoever, any person. One person sees a ganav, a thief, and one person sees a deep light radiating from the face. So you could look at the same story. You could look at the same life story. You could look at the same event, encounter, experience, challenge, relationship, whatever it is. 
You could see it from one perspective, and you could see it from a whole different perspective. Reb Meir says, you want to fulfill the mitzvah of Purim? You have to be able to remember what is the essence of The essence of it is have a wonderful week. Thank you very much. is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.